0: Hello, everyone. So today I'm with another special guest for to celebrate Women's History Month. Her name is Dianne Hall, and I contacted her after attending a nomadic math presentation about teaching English in Spain, which I mentioned on um, the previous podcast um, that I actually am looking into becoming an English teacher, specifically in Spain. It just seems like an amazing culture. So I just reached out to Diani and she was more than generous to spend her time today. So thank you so much for being here today. And I'm super excited to dive into, you know, teaching English, living in Spain and having your own podcast, which is called While She's Away.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I honestly, first of all, thank you for attending that. And I hope it was helpful. The event that I hosted with the Nomadic Network, I hope like there was some valuable information in there. And it makes me so excited um, that that's something that you're trying to do now, like through learning about it, um, because it was such an amazing experience for me. So it makes me excited for other people. Um, But yeah, thank you so much for having me on. And I'm excited to talk about all all the things.
0: Yes. So let's just dive in. What made you want to become an English teacher? Is it something you were always kind of interested in? Or is it something like as a means of travel? Because I know that's a a component for many people is like traveling and like making money on the road. So what was your inspiration?
1: Um, Well, I had always through university and after had nannied for eight years. Um, And so I had always been working with kids in that capacity. And I had worked in schools doing after school programs, assistant teacher stuff, and kind of a bunch of variations of working with students. And when travel became a really big part of my life and I didn't want to keep jumping back and forth from doing seasonal work. So what I would usually do for my first two trips or so, I would save up money and then leave and then come back and save up money and do it again. And I would do that through nannying. And I was thinking, okay, how can I do this on a more long-term basis? And I knew a lot of people or was hearing a lot about English teaching and it's a way that you can move to other countries and teach, while you're work, while you're traveling. And I needed a way to kind of marry the two. And that seemed like a viable prospect because I had Nanny for so many years. So I was in Thailand and I had met a friend and I was I remember talking to them about like how I was gonna keep traveling, like I needed to keep doing this. And he mentioned to me one of his friends doing this program, kind of just in passing, like he vaguely mentioned it. And I was like, oh, okay, like that seems like a cool option. And I was also looking at, oh, pairing and like seasonal work and different things that I could do. Um, so I added this to the list. And I remember when I was in Laos and it was like a few weeks before I was supposed to go back to the US, I was doing some more research about this program and just decided to like throw in an application. And this was before COVID was a thing, or like I think COVID was starting to kind of become a thing, but we weren't hearing much about it where I was. And so I was like, let me just throw in an application as I am like creating a pair profiles and different things to see what I can do. And while I was in the U.S. during COVID, I'd gotten back and like two weeks after I'd gotten back from Southeast Asia, the borders closed. And I was in the U.S. and I got my acceptance into this program. Um, so I had decided to do it because I was considering English teaching as like a career to allow me to keep traveling, living in Spain, Sounded interesting to me because it could. I ne- had never been to Europe at that point. I could practice my, um, I could practice teaching English in a school for eight months. It felt like low commitment. And I could see if I liked it. Um, I could practice my own Spanish. I could move abroad, and it kind of got me out of the U.S. during COVID, and I was able to move somewhere else. Um, so there are a lot of different reasons, but that's kind of like the main gist of why I had decided to do it.
0: Super cool. I think it's so awesome how you just make these little connections just through small conversations that could change your life. Um, actually, I have heard about NowCap, which is the program that you did, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, I heard about NowCap when I was in Copenhagen in a hostel and another girl was doing the same program and she kind of told me about it. And I have like a little notes app on my phone of like uh, travel jobs, <laughs> like ways I could make money on the road. And I just jot it down um but it's so cool how just you know you never know what a stranger or even if someone you know like a conversation can truly like transform your life like that and just as a traveler sharing bits of wisdom between um others in the travel community it's really special
1: oh 100 percent! it's one of my favorite aspects of travel. And I was talking to a friend about this yesterday, that ability to meet people and make these connections that I think you can only make in this travel space. And I think it's all such a supportive community of people who like want to be able to help you. So if you're like, oh, I'm considering doing this. It's always like, oh, I know a person or like I do this or I can connect you. And you end up with this mesh of just beautiful connections. And like you said, it allows you to end up in places that you didn't think you would end up being in years later, but it's really beautiful to look back and see how you ended up there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Did you have a travel community before um, you kind of embarked on your travels or did you kind of find your your people like once you dived into the world and like started your own podcast or yeah, what was your experience in that sense?
1: um that's a good question I didn't before I'd left the first time um and that was 2019 was when I took my first solo trip and I'd went to India and that's when I did Southeast Asia and at that point I didn't know anyone who also did this and so it was kind of like me telling friends and family, and they were like, what do you mean, <laughs> like, what do you mean you wanna just go backpack in Southeast Asia? Cause it wasn't something, especially I came from, I come from, um, you know, my dad immigrated to the U.S. from Guatemala. I'm first sec- first and second generation American. Um, so backpacking and traveling in this way isn't really something that's known mm-hmm. at all. And I had kind of discovered it through my own research, through blogs and stuff at that time. And so I didn't know anyone at that point. And, but before I went on that first trip, I did go to a, a conference, a travel conference called Women's Travel Fest. And I was just there a few weeks ago. That was my third year. And I think that was one of the first places I was able to find community. I'm originally from New Jersey and it was in New York. So I just went over into the city and it was the first time that I'd seen kind of people who were doing what I wanted to be doing, who were like living that life, who were passionate about travel in the way that I was. And it was really exciting. And then once I actually left, I was able to of course meet people on the road, make friends that inspired the podcast. Cause one of the first places I went was an ashram in India, but it was an all female ashram and I was with only other women. And I had never met like a big group of other women who were backpacking and living their travel lives in different ways. Um, And so I think through my travels, I have slowly built community. Whereas now I was saying to someone yesterday, now I think I'm so surrounded by that where like, I constantly have interviews with different people. So I'm constantly reaching out through to people. Um, I have a lot of friends in the podcasting, social media, kind of content creation, freelance work, traveler space. Um, And those are mostly the people that I interact with now where I'm fully immersed in that bubble, but it's just kind of been like an accumulation of different travels, being in the podcasting space and reaching out to people on social media. Like that's how I started finding guests and stuff. Yes, it was people that I already knew and had connections with through my travels. Those were some of the first guests I had. But after that, it was like, oh, I want to interview this person, this person. And it ends up becoming connections that you maintain more long-term. And so it's just been like a slow and gradual building of community and now I'm just in this little travel bubble.
0: <laughs> no I love that. I, I freaking love the travel community because I in my experience I've just found that everyone's super supportive and you're right like once you do find people that are living the kind of life that you want to live you just get so inspired to travel and I think that's one of the purposes of this podcast is to kind of um, inspire people and show that like you could be anyone and you could do exactly what people you look up to are doing and I think you definitely inspire me in that sense because you have a, a successful podcast already you um, you've been doing it for a year which is um which is congrats that's amazing Thank you. <laughs> to keep it up for sure
1: yeah um, of
0: and the fact that you've lived in Spain now for a year I mean I'm sure you've met so many more people in through that experience. So what was um, your your take on living in a different country for the first time, like just without ever setting foot in Europe? That's crazy.
1: Yeah, I think <laughs> mean, you can see from my track record that I'm quite bold in how I decide to just kind of go. Um because my first trip, I had literally never solo traveled, and usually one of the biggest tips is like, go for a weekend to a neighboring city. And I was like, I'm gonna go to India by myself. <laughs> it took four
0: months there, right? Like total for that trip.
1: That is yeah. I did four months on my first backpacking trip solo. I was like, we're gonna go to Southeast Asia, and we're just gonna do it alone for I uh, three was it three or four? three months? I think I'm pretty sure three months actually. Um, wow. But either way, I just kind of like sent it. And then the same kind of happened with Europe and going to Spain. I had never been to Spain. I had never been to Europe. And I was like, we're just going to go. Um, but I think those have been like how those those experiences have been how I've learned just by doing. Um, in terms of meeting people and like adjusting to living in a new city, I think my case was a bit special because it was partially during COVID. Um, I had arrived in... 20 in 2020, I think October of 2020, and I l- lived in Spain for a full year, basically. Um, not fully just doing this program, but I also appeared, and that's another thing. Like it led to me doing other things as well. Um, but in terms of adjusting, I think I had a really great core group of other girls who were also doing the program, so there was kind of like this safety net of like this community that I had coming into it. Like I instantly got along really well with my roommates. Um, And so they were kind of like my rock and helpful during this transition because it can be really overwhelming moving to a new country. Maybe at that point, I didn't know the language like next. I knew like really basics, but I didn't learn, start learning until I was like living there and with time. And even then there was still a lot of anxiety around you know, meeting Spanish speakers and like, I'm not fluent, I'm conversational, I can understand you. So there's language barrier you're dealing with, there's making friends, there's simple things like going to the grocery store, you know, like, they have a different way of measuring vegetables. And it's things that you don't even think about or consider when you're first making that move, but can be really overwhelming once you get there. And I don't want to like sugarcoat it and be like, it was beautiful and wonderful. It was I had an amazing experience. But there are challenges that come with it. Um, and so I think having community and kind of like learning how to navigate this space of mo- being in a new place is what has made me like a confident person and a confident traveler going forward. Um, and yeah, just in general, in terms of m- meeting new people, I was able, I was in a small town, like a small city in the South of Spain. Um, and was- so I- It
0: was Guelva, right?
1: Yeah, it was called Huelva, and it's like an hour south of Sevilla. It's like a really small city, Um, which I think for that time was good because you were able to meet a lot of other Spanish speakers, like native uh, Spaniards, and make a lot of friends with other Spaniards. So we kind of had like a group of friends, and it was a lot of us English teaching assistants um, and a lot of other... Uh, Spanish people and we had like a big group of friends and we would go to the beach and stuff and I think it allowed for us to meet other Spaniards in that way because we weren't like in Madrid where it's very easy to just be surrounded by other foreigners so it lent to making other connections with different people Um, and yeah it was it was a fascinating experience I feel like there's so many different like things that I could touch on but I guess that's kind of the gist but I wouldn't I would also say like yes it can be intimidating but don't let that be a reason not to do it um i think learning as you go or preparing yourself before you leave maybe like making sure you have studied the language of maybe it's not spain or wherever you're going knowing a decent amount that you feel comfortable because you're gonna have to you know open a bank account and maybe go to the doctor sometimes and do all those things on your own or if you have friends like i said that are able to go with you to do things like that um you know there's going to be parts of it that you have to manage on your own and knowing the language I would say would be like the biggest thing to help you through a lot of that and take off some of the anxiety um while you're while you're in transition because once you get comfortable it's okay
0: thank you for sharing that i have a few follow up questions so the first is how easy was it to find community once you were in spain because i've heard mixed opinions about Spaniards and like how open they are to foreigners. I've heard like they're friendly, but it's hard to get like close to people. Um, I've heard like they're not open to foreigners, but I mean, I guess it depends on where you are. Um, yeah. But in your experience, um, how, how was that like?
1: I think it can definitely depend on where you are and what you're doing. I, so I lived in three different parts of Spain. I lived in Andalusia, which is the south, where I was in Huelva, south of Sevilla. And that was the longest amount of time. That was eight months. And then I lived in Madrid for three months. And I also lived on the Costa Brava, like north of Barcelona, for three months, two, three months as well. Um, and each time it was a different experience, of course, because the second two times I was living with a Spanish family as an au pair. And so you were meeting their you were meeting their friends, their people, like you were in that community. So that was a different experience. I think if I'm referring to just the English teaching, like I said, specifically Andalusia, that region of Spain, they're very open, friendly, warm people. Um, And they're known for that. They're known for their openness, their kindness, their joy. Um, And so I had a lot of friends who were working in schools who became really close with the other teachers that they were working with. And that was one of the ways that they had like built and found community through through hanging out with the other teachers, through spending time with them, going to different events with them, things like that. Um, so it definitely depends on your region. I think if you're in a bigger city like Barcelona or Madrid, it'll probably be harder to find Spaniards to make that, to create that community with, because they're probably used to there being foreigners all the time and maybe aren't necessarily interested in making friends with other foreigners, foreigners who are going to come in and out kind of temporarily, you know? Um, So it can really depend where you are and how diligent you are about going about it. Because there is, of course, like you could very easily move and then just stick to your friends that you make through the program and like not make friends with any actual Spaniards and that be your experience. But I think if you're looking for language exchange opportunities and you're in Facebook groups looking for language exchange opportunities or you're trying to connect with other teachers at your school or maybe you're on like Bumble or Tinder or like scrolling because that's another way to not always not necessarily just date but like Bumble has a friendship feature like to make friends and you're going to find a lot of Spaniards and people who are from there using the app. Um, So I think if you're a bit more diligent about it and like put in that extra effort you can find that but it does vary depending on where you are and how much effort you're willing to put into creating those friendships.
0: Mm. Yeah, I definitely agree that you could be like as social as you want or you could be as antisocial as you want and that's something that you just learn when you solo travel is like how much effort you are willing to make those connections because sometimes you know you just you do want time by yourself, but there comes a point where community is very important, like you were saying, especially if you're living somewhere new. I feel like a community, uh, having people around you that could support you and that you could lean on is probably the best way to adjust in a new situation. I don't know if you would agree with that, but that's what I would imagine. Um, And I was kind of curious, what was the biggest shock for you about Uh, Living in Spain, like the biggest cultural shock, would you say?
1: Hmm. That's a good question. I will agree. First off, that community is one of the ways to make the transition easier, Um, and I'm grateful for the community that I had. Now I'm trying to think of the biggest culture shock. I don't think there was a ton that was shocking in a in a negative way. It was more just like curiosity, like I was just really intrigued by the differences there were, you know, in how they lived their life. And I think specifically in the south of Spain, coming from the U.S., we have a very like capitalist hustle culture. Um, And, you know, people work their nine to fives and then you go home and there's a lot less of a sense of community here and i think that was one of the main things i noticed first of all that was very different in the south of spain and i think i still kind of like hold that really dear is the value of community the quality of life is so important to them um and they really prioritize like work life balance they really prioritize joy um they like live they what's the what's the quote not work to live, not live to work, but work to live. There we go. That's, that's that's. I think, embodies and encompasses, like, what it's like there. So there would be times that I would get out of school in the afternoon, and it's, like, 1 p.m., and you pe- pe- see people outside on the streets, like, having a beer and chatting. And that would be every day. And it's, like, the middle of the afternoon. And I remember at first being, like, what is happening? <laughs> literally like what what is that do people not have jobs like what is no one working like what is happening here and it's just that the priorities are different sundays for them in the south of spain specifically are spent with family and friends you have like a sobremesa which is basically you go out to eat for hours and just sit there talking and enjoying your family company and they really value that time spent together everything's closed on sundays you can't go grocery shopping nothing's open. So I remember being like, oh, I'm going to run errands on Sunday. No, you're not. Nothing's open. And there were just little things like that. But it was because the priorities are different that it was like a little weird to adjust to. There's also siesta during the week in the middle of the day where like shops would literally close for two hours. And I'm like, oh, I have to run here. No, you can't. And there would be so many times where I'd go and I'm like, I forgot it was closed. Um, And it was just it was just little things like that. But I think I eventually got used to it and I'd be like, I'm not going to nap when I get home from work. I'm an adult. I don't need to. By two months in, I was taking naps in the middle of the day and like enjoying living a life of slowness, of relaxation, of different priorities that I had never experienced before. So I think maybe not culture shock, but that was just the biggest difference. And um, the thing that I appreciated the most was just how much they prioritized family, relaxation, rest, and just joy over working and exhaustion.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest draws for me about moving in Spain, living living there, because there, it just seems like in the US, like you were saying, it's very much go, 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 and I'm kind of sick of it. Like, <laughs> I, I, I'm the type of person that loves to just savor the small moments and like just take time for yourself and and let yeah, like you were saying, to enjoy life. And it's definitely um a bit harder in the US in that sense because you're always expected to be on to the next thing, always maximizing efficiency. And while there's a time and place for that it's it's impossible to be constantly on it all the time. Yeah. So I guess I really appreciate um what I hear from Spain is that they actually do take the time to do that. So um,
1: yeah, I don't think it's just Spain. I think it's a lot of other like anytime I'm I traveling in
0: general. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I, I found that specifically in Spain, of course. But I think anytime I'm traveling, it lends more to a life of slowness and enjoying. And anytime I'm back in the US, I can like I think because my values just don't align with the values here. I can instantly feel that like rigidness or that like, oh, you know, that's. Discom- that's uncomfortable for me because it'll come up in conversations. It'll like, how much are you making? Da, 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 da. Like, I'm doing XYZ, and I'm like, it's okay. <laughs> Relax. <laughs> Relax. Um, but yeah, definitely, definitely agree with that.
0: So, can you describe your typical work day um, and also your typical day off? Like, just, you know, your daily living in Spain.
1: Okay. Um, so, typical work day, I know I said that it was um like 16 hours a week or so that you're working so it's not a full-time position so everyone's schedule is going to look different and some friends would have off you usually also have three-day weekends which was really nice um because then you could do a little bit of traveling and stuff if you wanted to so I guess I would have off Mondays my friends usually had off Fridays and a day off on a Monday because my friends were working and stuff I think I would work on I would wake up, maybe go exercise. That would be the day that I'd maybe like run my errands, um, buy groceries, you know, cook for the week. Or just if a friend was like, let's go to the beach, I'd also just probably do that as well. depends on the day. Um, But uh, Mondays were just kind of like my free days uh, to do whatever it is that I wanted to do. And then during the week, I would usually start in the morning. I'm pretty sure I started around nine from what I can remember. And so I would leave the apartment, um, walk to the bus station, which was like a 10 minute walk from me, usually run because I was running late to catch the bus. Um, I'd catch the bus and it was, and it was a- Yeah, literally. <laughs> I remember like sprinting down the sidewalk with my hair wet, like trying to get to the bus. That
0: was um, me today, sprinting to class only to find out it was canceled.
1: <laughs> that's so heartbreaking, honestly. I'd be like, I just did this for no reason. Um but yeah, so I would take the bus in the morning. It'd be like a 20, 30-minute bus ride. And then by the time I got to town, I could walk another 10, 15 minutes to um, the school. It was like a 15-minute walk through the, like the town center. It's a really small town called Cartaya. And I would remember like a little pastry shop that I would love to stop at and get a little apple pastry for like a euro and or like a cafe or something um, or a tostada. And then at school... I guess a typical day would be um, doing some sort of vocab lesson. I would probably be in like two or three different classes that day. I would do a vocab lesson, a game in one class, and then maybe like helping them review um, their English grammar or something in, in a different class. And it kind of varied depending on the class that I was in or the teacher that I was working at working with because they'd want me to do different things with the kids. Um so maybe one person just like gave me the book and we're like, okay, here are the vocab words in Spanish. You can teach them to them in English in whatever way you want. You have half the class time. Or another teacher would be like, oh, I want you to do this specific game or go over this specific worksheet with them. Um, so it kind of varied class to class. And then I would be there usually from like nine to one, like half like half the day, the morning time. And then after that, I would drive home, I would carpool with one of the teachers who also lived in Nueva, so she would drive me home. And it was nice because she didn't speak that much English, and at the time, I didn't speak that much Spanish, so we were both, like, trying to learn and practice because she was taking English classes. So we'd use that, like, 20, 30-minute drive as, like, an intercambio where we could both practice. Um, And then after that, I would go home and, like, make a lunch at home and spend the evening either reading or hanging out with my roommates we'd like go roller skating or just hang out around town maybe go out to dinner if we didn't want to spend any money we would stay in we lived really close to like this um river where we would go a lot of times to watch the sunset which was so so nice Uh, it was so nice we would just go sit together and like chat watch the sunset maybe bring snacks um so it like i said before it was very just like slow relaxed living um And that would be kind of like a day in the life. Oh, if I came back, I would also either that night at some point while I'm having dinner or before dinner, do like um, prep for class the next day, like whatever materials I needed. If I was going to play a game, if I needed certain things, if I was doing a slideshow and just make sure I had all my materials prepped for for the next day.
0: Mm. That sounds like such a wholesome day. I know,
1: it was. Now I look back, I'm like, oh, that was so lovely.
0: (laughs) Were there any times where it did feel stressful, where you either felt unprepared or you're like incompetent? Because with these programs, I don't believe you need like a certificate to teach English, right? You don't need any sort of qualifications.
1: You don't. You have to have a bachelor's degree or like be in a bachelor's program. But that doesn't necessarily mean that what you're focusing on in that program is teaching. Um, so you could really have a degree in marketing and do the program, you know, (laughs) so it doesn't really have to be relevant. I think, um, for me specifically, I, like I had said, I had worked with kids a lot and had done tutoring and things. So like I kind of knew kids well enough to know maybe what I could and couldn't do. Um, also one of my friends, this was her second year doing the program. And so she had a lot of resources like worksheets and I could be like, oh, like we're doing this. And she's like, okay, maybe try this. Or honestly, I was doing a lot of research, like games that you can play related to this and, da, 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 and just kind of coming up with ideas on my own and, and in a very trial and error fashion. Um, and I would run it by my roommates who were also working in schools. And so I'd be like, I was thinking of doing this with them. Like, how do you think that sounds? They're like, that sounds good. Take that out of the worksheet or do this instead. And we would kind of bounce ideas off each other. But I think it was really intimidated in the beginning because I had never actually taught before. And so if the teacher was like, you have full reign, I was like, ah, I don't know what to do. Um, so it was a lot of figuring that out as well, where I had to learn what worked and what didn't. And some games, like simple games, were such a hit. Kids loved them. They were talking. They were learning. They were excited. Other things, I was like, this didn't take up as much time as I thought it was going to. And I don't have something else for this after. So I have to come up with something on a whim right now. Or um, maybe the game, like they weren't as into the game as I thought they would. And it was harder to like get their focus and concentration. Um so it was a lot of trial and error, and just kind of researching different resources and things that I could do with them, and also asking the teachers that I was working with. I was like, "Is there anything that past auxiliars did with the students that really worked or didn't work? Or um, is, are there any resources that like would be helpful for me to utilize in in working with them?" And don't be afraid to to ask for help, especially if you've never done this before. And like you have a um, coordinator. In the program that works in the school, who kind of is in charge of like giving you your schedule, managing you if you have questions and things, it goes to them. Um, so asking them too like, are there any resources that I can use? Is there anything specific I should know? Things like that. Um, and just being really vocal, it can be hard because it's an intimidating space to be in in the beginning. But I think as long as you're friendly, the kids really liked me where I was because I would be like silly goofy because I'd nannied for so long. I like I don't care if I have to be a little extra um, fun and extroverted for them to like me, or like I would go and spend lunches with them when they were having recess because I just wanted to talk to them and learn from them. And they were really intrigued by me and I by them. Um, so I like, they could tell that I cared. And so therefore were a bit more interested in, in learning. Um, so it is a bit trial and error, but And it can sound intimidating, but you do figure it out as you go. And like I said, you have eight months. So if the first month is just you kind of getting your ground by the second month, you're running and you've got it.
0: I feel like the hardest part is just, you know, taking that initial step to put yourself in that situation. And so, yeah, you just figure it out along the way.
1: Yeah, I remember getting there and like going to my town to see the school before I started and Even that first day, like walking there, oh my God, I was so anxious. I was like, (sighs) I'm like, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And you just have to like one, two, three, go. And of course, there's a lot of anxiety to it. Like you're in a whole school. There's so many kids. You don't, you've never been here before. They don't know you. You have to introduce yourself. But I think as long as you're able to make it fun. And I think after that first day, you're able to kind of like push through that anxiety a little bit.
0: So I remember in your presentation for Nomadic Matt that you you taught to mostly kids who were either completely unfamiliar or just vaguely familiar with English. So what was the biggest challenge in teaching English to students that hardly knew your native language?
1: That is such a good question because they also you're technically not allowed to speak to them in Spanish at all. Like in your role, it's just supposed to be. English. And that's nearly impossible when they don't understand any English. Um, so I think in the beginning, I remember doing just like my intro presentation and doing a lot of like pictures and slow speaking really slowly and using, um, the teacher's help a lot of times too, where I would like say something, a sentence or phrase in English and like do you want to see if anyone understands and there are times where you just get blank stares like they just look at you like I'm sorry ma'am what like nothing nothing um and so then you use the teacher's help well they're like they'll translate or you have them repeat the words and like slowly you can make some progress but I think in the beginning it was just really slow and a lot of um, other materials that aren't just words so cues that you can use like pictures and videos and so it's like If I'm telling you my favorite animal is a dog and then I've got me with a dog on the slideshow or things like that. Um, Just making it as easy as possible for them. It did make it difficult in terms of like disciplining sometimes. Um, If they were being like rowdy and things, then I would switch to Spanish and like say a few words and they'd be like, she speaks Spanish, (laughs) she speaks Spanish because you're not supposed to say anything. Or the teacher would kind of take initiative in times like that. But I think it was just being like very... um, Using very basic language and using other cues to rely on rather than just words was what worked a lot of the time.
0: Was it intimidating at all having a professional teacher kind of watch you the whole time? Because I feel like that would make me uncomfortable. I hate like being... Like, not micromanage, but just, like, being supervised. (laughs) I like doing my own thing.
1: Oh, 100%. 100%. (laughs) Um, And that's something you'd have to kind of get used to, um, is them being there in the room. And a lot of times, like, they weren't paying attention. Like, okay, you have this section of the class, and they're, like, grading papers or working on something else. So they're not necessarily paying attention. And they would, like, pipe in if the kids, you know, maybe weren't listening or something like that. And they were attentive. But I think they kind of trust you. And I think it's also okay to ask for feedback and be like, was that okay? Or was there anything that like I should do differently or that you would do differently? Um, but I don't think, yes, I understand that anxiety because I have felt that anxiety too of like, oh my God, they're watching me and I'm going to do a terrible job and you just like end up in a spiral. But um, I had to keep reminding myself that like, they appreciate that i'm here doing this thing that i'm trying and i think as long as you show up with effort, you know, prepared, wanting to engage and they see that on you. You know, they see that you're like willing to play and be fun and interactive with the kids that you have ideas that you want to make this a good experience for them and yourself, then they just appreciate the effort you're willing to put in even if it's not maybe a perfect execution, you know. So I think it's that effort that matters more than anything else.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that completely makes sense. Um, what would you say is something you learned about yourself when doing this job, teaching English and living in Spain? Are there, is there an like overarching lesson or illuminating thing that you learned about who you are?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's funny recounting this now and being like, oh, I did that thing. Because it kind of surprises me still to this day that, like, I did that. And I'm like, because that was scary. And that was a lot. But I did it. And something that I learned with every trip, and especially with this experience of, like, moving to a whole new country, even though I'd never done that before, is that we are so much more capable than we think we are. Um, And the more that I do this and the more that I travel and the more that I push myself to experience more, the more I realize how capable I am of different things and like the more confidence comes with that. And so now I think that was the biggest thing that it was like, Oh, I can do this. And like, yes, there's going to be anxiety and yes, it's going to be scary at times, but I think all those beautiful parts of it that I got to experience totally outweigh maybe the, Kind of anxiety of like going into a bank and having to open up a bank account, you know? And those are those are times where you learn as well. Um, and so I just gained a level of confidence and self-assurance of, oh, I'm capable of doing this thing. You know, like going forward, I feel like I can move to another country again and figure out how to start all over because I've done it before. And even if you're not feeling super confident in that moment, you still have that track record of like your anxiety can lie to you and be like, oh, you know, that sounds really scary, da da da, da. you are like, no, I've done this before. You know, like I I have proof that I can do this again. And it's that um, self-assured confidence going forward and like venturing into new things that I think I've taken with me of like, if I can do that, I can do this. And if I can do this, I can do the next thing. And it just becomes progressive and you become more and more confident in your ability to do things you didn't think you could do.
0: That is so beautiful. I, I hope I travel, that well. <laughs> well. Yeah, when you solo travel, like these are the things that make it so worth it, and why I believe everyone should solo travel at least once because you do build that inner confidence and belief in yourself that you really, it's it's hard to do it in any other way besides, you know, tackling on something independent. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that's awesome, like that you went through this transformation. Um, and I think for me, like, the hardest, or like, like you were saying, the inner critic in your head, I think it's important to look to remember that not every voice in your head, you have to believe, like, every thought that pops into your head is not necessarily you. And you could cling to whatever belief that you want. Mm-hmm. And that is a super powerful thing that I, I constantly remind myself is like, this voice is telling me, oh, I'm not I'm not enough of this. I'm too much of this, but I don't have to listen to it.
1: Exactly. And, it, and not even that it's just, it's not you. Sometimes it's lying to you, you know, like yeah. there's the level of like, this isn't, my thoughts are not me. I'm separate from this, but also whatever these thoughts are that aren't mine are not telling me the truth, you know, and it's recognizing that and not letting that stuff stop you because these experiences are so worth it Um that, it's not fair to ourselves to not allow ourselves the ability to experience these things because of the lies and fears that are going on in your head. Like it's totally valid to be scared a hundred percent. That's totally, there's a lot of reasons to be scared, but it's, I don't think it's ever enough to not do the thing. Um, And that's just, yeah, that's my perspective on it. So not allowing it to get in your way. And I think you learn how to manage it more once you do the, do the thing, you know, there's always going to be new fears and things that come up. But, um, if you've proven to yourself that you can do this one thing, you know, your anxiety can't lie to you about that anymore because you've done it. So then it has, then it'll be another thing, of course, but there's like a progressive level of like, that's what happens when you show yourself that you can do it, that anxiety around that thing dissipates.
0: Yeah, 100%. I kind of want to reflect this back on your podcast, because I listened to the first episode, and you were saying how you were really nervous to start at first, because I don't, you had some anxiety about, um, I don't know, just like, it's intimidating to have a whole, whole hold the conversation and like, you know, um, kind of, yeah have the power to dictate the whole thing it could be scary but yeah like for your podcast what was your inspiration why you created it and what are some things you'd like to share about like what what's in store and like what you have planned
1: Mm for it oh um I think it's so funny. You say the first episode and I think I kind of cringed a little bit cuz I was like, "Oh, I haven't listened to that in a while and I wonder what that sounds like now and maybe I should update it." Um, but I also think like it's a good reflection of where it was that I started and, you know, um I I think my fear around that, which you didn't ask about but you mentioned, so I want to touch on it briefly. The fear around that, which I remember it being such a crippling fear like it took me years to start the podcast because I was so afraid of what people were gonna think of me sharing. And it was that fear of of people's thoughts, like the imposter syndrome of like, who am I to be talking about this? And who am I to be sharing about this and starting a podcast and all of those things. So that was the huge fear that I had. Um, And then once I stepped into it, now it's so insane to like feel as confident as I do in that space um because I know what I'm doing and I work in podcasting now like as a freelancer and um it it's in so insane to see that shift happen but the kind of inspiration behind starting it I guess circles back to when I was in Southeast Asia and I mentioned that all female ashram that I was at um and I think I had wanted to start it even before then, but I think the idea didn't fully take shape until then. Cause I think at first it was gonna be called like badass backpacker or something like that. Um, and I remember before I first started backpacking, like recording episodes in my closet and like wanting to start it, like being really excited about it. Um, and it was just this want to share. And then once I'd met these women in at the ashram, who were backpacking in different ways i was like okay i want it to be specific to women and women's experiences as travelers because i think because i am now in this bubble of solo female travelers and i know a ton and you know i'm comfortable in this space i still forget that there are people outside of this who like don't do this thing you know who like i've met people like two weekends ago and i was telling them like oh yeah i do xyz and they're like what I'm like, oh, okay. I I forget that there's like a real world, I guess, out there where people don't do this. Um, And it was that I wanted it to be a, a space where women saw what they were able to do for themselves through other women's stories and also just an opportunity to like highlight really dope things that women have done in the travel space and on their own from I have a friend, Kaylin, who I adore that. One of their first trips was crossing the U.S. via bike with $200 and like crashed their bike, had to spend that $200 to get it fixed. And so crossed the U.S. with no money and was doing work exchanges. And like this other um girl that I interviewed, this other woman that I interviewed on um, climbing Kilimanjaro, and she's like talking about how she got her period while she's on it. And she has like really strong periods and just all these examples of women doing Amazing things. <clears throat> Sorry. All these examples of women doing amazing things and highlighting those things and you seeing what you're capable of through these experiences. Um, and it has turned into that. I've gotten countless DMs and I have a little like real highlight on my Instagram of like messages that I get from people. Um, and someone told me when I first started to like save those messages because they're going to be the thing that kind of drive you in those moments where you're feeling not so great. And so I have all these messages from women of like, oh, I didn't know about trusting house sitters. I didn't know that was a thing that I could do. And now I'm doing it in Portugal in two months. Or like, I um, you know, I decided to take this backpacking trip. Or I've I am taking the solo trip and I've been really, really nervous, but like your podcast has helped me feel so calm and da-da-da-da. And it's fulfilling the thing that I had wanted it to, which is really, really exciting and lovely to see. And just for future episodes I don't really know because I haven't really planned through season three I have a bunch of episodes right now on the back burner ready to go out for season two about a variety of topics but I think I want to highlight more um in season three highlight more sustainability and more LGBTQ travel and like different diverse aspects of travel um And I recently released an episode with Alyssa. I released it yesterday on she's lesbian and I'm also queer. And so like traveling in that way and that being, you know, a part of your experience. And so I just I think going forward, my goal is to have it be more inclusive and more diverse and highlight just more topics and to help it have it help more women.
0: Uh, Oh my gosh. I love that so much. That makes me so happy to hear. And like, it it really inspires me like again, because um, that's what I'm trying to do with this podcast. And hopefully um, my episodes can do the same thing. And like it, it, at least inspire, you know, one other person. I think that's, that's the purpose in life is just to touch as many lives as you can. Um, You don't have to like move mountains, even just, you know, impacting one person's life is is significant in its own way so
1: exactly exactly
0: that is amazing diani i love
1: that (laughs) it's worth it it's so worth it and i know like starting and doing all the things can be really difficult but when you when someone says like oh wow this really impacted me it makes all the hard parts of it so worth it you know um, and I agree with you a hundred percent. And like that's what we're meant to do in this life. And if we're able to leave some sort of positive impact, maybe it's not millions, but like if a handful of people are like, wow, this really helped me, then you know, you couldn't ask for anything better because that's the best feeling in the entire world. So I'm excited for you too to see like where this ends up going. And there's just now that you've started, there's just so much space to go and to run. And so I'm I'm excited for you.
0: Thank you. And thank you so much for being part of it. So what's next on your travel adventure itinerary?
1: I'm doing so my next, I leave next week and my adventure is through Central and South America now. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Um, Yeah. So I leave on Tuesday and I'll be in Mexico city for a month. I'm volunteering at a hostel and kind of hoping to navigate being able to work and do my freelance work while volunteering at the same time and settle in a bit. But yeah, this next stint is very just open-ended and um, seeing how long I can go and how much of a lifestyle I can make this and how easy I can do the work and travel thing at the same time and work my way through through Central and South America. So yeah, I'm um, excited to
0: that's so amazing, because I believe it was your first episode that I listened to that you were saying it. it's always been your dream to go backpacking throughout South America. Yeah. And now you're doing it.
1: Years later, years later, because initially that was supposed to be my first trip. Um, and it didn't end up happening. Like I said, I ended up in India. But I have been wanting to for years, and it's always been like, oh, I'm going to you know, do Southeast Asia. Oh, I moved to Spain. Wait, I'm going to go back to Europe and do part other parts of Europe. I didn't get to do. And now I think it's, it's worked out so perfectly the way that it has for a reason, because now I'm in a space where like I can go for as long as I want and I'm not just on, you know, saved money. And it's like I have a monthly income and I can make this long-term and I can really enjoy it. And like, I don't know, take it all in for a longer period of time that I maybe would have been able to the first time I did it. So Um, Yeah, it's been a dream for a while. And I'm excited to kind of finally venture into that and see what comes out of it.
0: (laughs) I'm so excited for you. Maybe our paths might meet because I'm trying to go to South America as well this summer. I'm definitely looking into Ecuador, Um, definitely Mexico. I've never been even though it's like the closest country um, to the United States. Um, But yeah, I already saved a bunch of your podcast episodes to listen to as well. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I truly wish you the best. I know it's going to be quite the adventure. So, yeah, I'm I'm excited Aww, for you. Thank and you. thank you again for your time today.
1: Of course, thank you so much for having me on. I love being able to share about my experiences and also just like have conversations about travel because it's my favorite thing to talk about. So i was so happy to so happy to be able to share. And if you do find yourself in um, in Ecuador, somewhere in South America, you have my Instagram. Send me a message and we can see if we can meet up somewhere. That would be awesome. But thank you again so much for having me.
0: Yes, of course. And happy Women's History Month again. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Have a great rest of your day, Diani. See you. Thanks.
1: You too.